Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. I'm Tom Hayes, and this is your 202nd video cast episode, 192nd podcast for the week ending August 31st, 2023. We're live from New York City this week. Very exciting, in to do a lot of media. By the way, tomorrow I will be on Fox Business making money with Charles Payne at 2 p.m. If you don't watch Charles Payne's show, you're missing out. He always has great guests with all different viewpoints. Uh, he's open-minded, he brings people on, great show, definitely check it out. And today during the podcast, we've got a very special guest, my friend Mike Kelly with Hurricane Idilia happening in Florida. I asked him to come on. He specializes in personal lines. He deals with billionaires, multimillionaires, uh, decamillionaires, centimillionaires, et cetera. And he's going to kind of give us some guidance. A lot of people have houses on the coast, et cetera, and very excited. We don't do it very often. Glad he was able to get on with us. Uh, but we'll start with our photos. We like to keep people updated on what's happening with life and family and, and get a lot of positive feedback. Uh, on the way back from uh, the beach vacation in North Carolina, we stopped in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, to see the in-laws. And um, I called my friend Bill Valari. I was like, listen, where do I need to go while I'm down here? Because he lived in Atlanta for a very long time. Now he lives in Connecticut with his lovely wife, Jordan. And uh, he's like, listen, uh, I'm an investor in uh, Lake Colonial. You need to go there. I'll set it up. Don't worry. It's going to be great. I I'll tell you, I went. we went to this restaurant. We brought the in-laws. It was unbelievable. And I've been a lot to a lot of great restaurants in my day. Uh, they brought out, first of all, he set the whole thing up. So he, they brought out, uh, the general manager comes out, Paul, and, and uh, you know, they bring out this uh, red snapper. They bring out uh, all these rolls. They bring out this tuna tartare. They bring out this uh, spicy coconut soup. Like, you name it. It was just amazing. And uh, uh, shaky beef. I'm trying to remember. It's like, you know, he asked me, uh, um, you know, what did you like best? I was like, well, you sent us the entire menu. It's, it's kind of hard to choose. Uh, but it was just phenomenal. And then, you know, we get to, through the 800 courses that they set up. And, and then, uh, and then at the end, we're just sitting there and sitting there and it's like a Saturday night and I'm seeing like the places packed to the brim. And I'm like, they're going to need this table at some point. What's going on? And I'm like, so I go to the waitress and like, can you please bring over the bill? Uh, I know you probably need this table. He's like, no, no, no. Mr. Valari has covered everything. And I'm like, come on, <laughs> come on. So Bill, I'm going to get you back. Uh, we're very grateful to, to uh, you and Jordan. We had an amazing time. And it turns out uh, Lake Colonial is not just in Atlanta. So if you're in Atlanta, you definitely got to go. Uh, but I was talking to Bill. He's like, yeah, I think we have a dozen. He's a, he's a major investor in it. Uh, Lake Forest, Delray Beach, Naples, Denver, Scottsdale. It's French, Vietnamese, Fusion, Chicago, uh, et cetera. So they have them everywhere. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, great time with the family. Oh, there's the snapper. Uh, this was at the New York Stock Exchange on yesterday. On Wednesday, uh, it, was, it was just amazing. I went down there to do the Schwab Network. And here are some photos uh, of that. That's where Schwab's booth is. That's where CNBC's booth is. I've also been down there to do Cheddar. I've, I, used to, I got my start doing Fox Business when they had a booth down there. Now I do uh, Fox Business in studio now that uh, COVID's over. This is the New York Stock Exchange Bell. That was a, a great honor. 
And uh, I want to thank Josh for being a great host at Schwab for uh, taking some of these photos. That's the CNBC booth I was telling you about. And then, of course, I went to do Yahoo at 770 Broadway. And as always, I always want to point out that Vornado owns the building. And uh, not only is Yahoo in it, but Facebook and Meta is in it. It was busting at the seams. For those of you who've been with us for a while, you know we were uh, talking about Vernado when it was uh, below 15, and uh, it's gone up quite a bit when no one wanted commercial real estate, but we made the distinction of A properties versus B and C, and it's a very important distinction. Oh, and by the way, Bill wrote this article. You should check it out uh, in Insurance Journal. Uh, what role could insurance premium finance have played in recent bank failures? This is a very important article because it talks about bond duration uh, et cetera. Oh, and, and by the way, if you own a small bank, and he's going to kill me for this, but if you own a small bank um, or you have friends that own a small bank or an investor or whatever, I've seen him drop, he does premium finance. I've seen him drop business lines into small banks and make his partner a ton, a ton of money. So uh, if you have a bank that wants that additional, reach out to me because uh, pretty, pretty exciting opportunities there. All right. Now, moving on here, this is... Uh, uh, this is Max. Uh, I went to go see him and he said that uh, to polish shoes, which, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to find nowadays uh, on 42nd and 5th, go see him. But the reason I brought it up, number one, he was a great guy. But number two, um, he said business is now bustling because everyone's getting back to work at the offices. So that goes in line with what we expected with our A property thesis. And Grand Central is just down the street from here. So you have all the A properties around Grand Central that Vornado controls on Park Avenue, et cetera, and then obviously around Penn Station. So on to the media for the week. I uh, want to thank uh, over at Schwab Network, Heidi Schultz, Kenny Pokari, Nicole Petalides um, for having me on. We're going to tune right into that real quick. It's a short segment because, uh, not number one, we gave two picks, which is always uh, uh, very interesting for a lot of people. And number two... Uh, it gives the general market overview before we switch over to the interview with Mike uh, and then some more granular stuff on the markets and individual companies. So listen here. All right, let's get back to the big economic headlines and all the things that you should be keeping on your radar. Joining me right now live here at the New York Stock Exchange, Thomas J. Hayes, Chairman, Managing Member, Great Hill Capital. Thank you for being with us. Glad Thanks you're here. Me, so um, as we were, I was saying that we've gotten in the prints today, GDP, ADP, PCE, and what we saw was a little lighter than expected on all of them. A uh, different vibe than earlier this month where everything was coming in a little stronger. Um, and, you know, the idea is the question whether or not the bear case has legs to stand on because there are a lot of folks who are still looking for recession. What say you? I think it's a Goldilocks scenario, Nicole. I, I think that this is going to give the Fed the proper cover to wind down the tightening cycle. I think everyone's kind of nervous about the August-September volatility. They're the worst two months of the year seasonally except for the fact uh, when you have the S&P up 15 to 20 percent through July since 1905, the rest of the year on average is up 9 percent. So I do think there's a lot to do under the surface. And if you look at a lot of stocks, uh, 48 percent of the all world country index is trading below their pre-pandemic highs. So 
as managers have to play catch up because most managers miss the 20% right. rally, right. Uh, there's a lot to do. So you think they'll probably be buying, which could give a boost to the markets? I do think, but I don't think they're going to be buying the same stuff that led the first half. So I think the Magnificent Seven will do just fine, but they're not mm -hmm. going to outperform. I think the real opportunity is going to be below the surface. You're going to see these managers, if you look, the Barclays hedge fund index through July was up 6% versus yeah. the S&P was up 20%. Right. They've got to find things to do that uh, can participate in the second half of the year. Yeah, understood. I mean, I know some of your picks here today. You had, um, for example, Crown Castle, right, um, in the world of real estate. And we think about telecom and the towers. Uh, tell me about a name like that. Why does that. Why could that be something to go on? So we have a theme, Nicole. Uh, we want to benefit from those stocks that have been hit hard by the excessive tightening cycle now that the Fed is winding down. What are those stocks we can take advantage of that, with the tightening ending, are going to actually get a bounce? So Crown Castle's down 50 percent, but yeah. their earnings and cash flow has been relatively steady. They've got 40,000 towers. They've got a 6.25 percent dividend yield while, while you wait. And we think as this normalizes over the next couple of years and demand for data goes up, this can be a double over the next 24 to 36 months. What did you think about the GDP notching lower, for example? I mean, does, what, does that give the Fed, as you said, the okay? Yeah, it gives the Fed the okay, certainly a pause, pause. In, in September. And then by November, I think we're going to get enough data with the inflation, with the jobs report, which we saw the ADP, probably the right. non-farm payrolls will come in a little lighter. And if they just back off and they, they can keep rates elevated but stop hiking, I think this economy can just hum along. Mm -hmm. You know, the whole idea for the Fed has been higher for longer. Yeah. And um, we saw at least one pause. And now the question is whether or not they'll pause in September and then raise in November. Um, with all of that happening, you also have City as a buy, yeah. um, as a name that you love. And again, financials have been somewhat out of favor of late. Yeah, this is another one that was hit by the tightening cycle. It's down 50%. It's trading at 40% of mm -hmm. book value. So 60% discounted book, 50% off the tangible book, trading at 6.8 times forward earnings compared to its historic multiple of 10 times. They're selling off a lot of non-core assets to raise cash. They're going to be buying in stock. They've got to bring down their cost, their efficiency ratio hit 69%. The market doesn't like that. They've got to bring it down to 63. And if Jane Frazier delivers on her plan over the next few years, it's going to be a $90, $95 stock. So another potential double over the next 24 to 36 yeah. months. Yeah. We just were talking about the same with John Kaufman. And he actually, his trade was a bearish out of the money put spread. And he was talking about that critical price level of $40 yeah. and noted that if it breaks below $40, um, it could see follow through selling. Would you say, um, is that a buying opportunity or is that a hold the, hold it uh, you know, kind it, of, it's, hold the moment kind of yeah. thing? Yeah, Nicole, that's all noise to me because basically I'm buying a business at a 60% discount to its liquidation value. So if it's a 63% discount to its liquidation value, I, I just top up and buy more and increase right. the position. And he's also looking more near term as he's yeah. doing some of these trades. Um, in the meantime, what about the TLT? Well, I'll tell you, this is the most crowded trade by large uh, traders and uh, speculators. They're the most short, uh, the 10-year 10 10 -year treasuries than they've been since the bottom in 2018, mm. right before you had that huge rally. So you always want to take the other side. Commercial hedgers have been buying the heck out of the 10-year uh, treasury, 
And when that happens, they're always early, they're always right if you look at the commitments of traders uh, from the CFTC. And we think that as the Fed gets out of the way, you're going to see a huge bid. You, you know they put a trillion dollars of supply on the market in the last couple of weeks. You're going to, as that's worked through, you're going to see a huge bid into the end of the year from pensions that have long-term liabilities that want to lock in that 4 4.5% yield from the 10-year Treasury. You sent us a lot of uh, great information, but I'm going to pick up on the uh, crowded trades, because since you mentioned the crowded trades, yeah. and I was thinking about um, technology and China. Yeah. You had China in there, yeah. too. I know. No one wants to talk about China. I'll tell you one thing. Uh, the, crowded, the most crowded trade is long tech. So we think that's right. going to underperform. It doesn't mean it's going to crash. We own uh, Alphabet. We own Amazon from the lows in, in, in uh, last fall. Mm-hmm. Uh, but short China, the, ba- the worse the headlines get, the more bullish it is because they're going to have to do the stimulus. You saw Raimondo come out of there, uh, Secretary Raimondo yes. come out of that very positive stuff. You see them cutting mortgage rates to get uh, money in consumers' pockets, stimulate the housing. They just backstop the large failure in, in the housing market. Uh, but what you're going to see is huge consumer stimulus, fiscal stimulus coming to a theater near you. And when that happens, if you look at the internet sector, their, their earnings, Pinduoduo you saw yesterday, Baba, yeah. Tencent, we're all very strong. As soon as that stimulus comes, they're going to be the major beneficiaries, and there's a tremendous opportunity if you look out to up to yeah. 20. And we're going to be talking more about Pinduo Duo on the show. Thank yeah. you so much. Thanks Thomas. for having it's me, great Nicole. To see you. Yeah, Thanks likewise. Thanks for being here in person. And we're back. So then, uh, after uh, being with Nicole in the morning, I went to see Shauna Smith over at Yahoo Finance, also uh, remotely. Akiko Fujita. So I want to thank Taylor Clothier, Sydney Freed, Shauna Smith, and Akiko Fujita for having me on Yahoo Finance. We're going to go to this because this is a little more nuanced and a different pick. So take a listen here. Yeah, I think we finally have a Goldilocks scenario where the slowing is starting to kick in, the lagged effect is starting to kick in. And more than anything, what that means for the Fed is it gives them cover to actually pause in September, which is kind of priced into the markets right now. And then we have till November, which everyone thinks there's going to be a hike in November. But we're going to get a lot of inflation data between now and then. We're going to get a few jobs reports between now and then. And looking at the ADP data today, we're going to see the jobs report on Friday. If those numbers continue to come in a little bit softer, the Fed may be done in terms of hiking, not done with tightening because they'll keep rates elevated for a little while. And that creates this perfect scenario for stocks uh, moving forward. You, You know, a lot of people are very nervous about August and September seasonality right now now. Uh, But there's a caveat to that. Since 1905, in the years that the S&P is up 15 to 20 percent by July, the remainder of the year on average is up 9 percent. So with all this fear, I think people are underestimating the amount of cash that's still on the sidelines that has to play catch up for underperformance in the first half of the year. And Tom, we'll talk a bit about you know how you can play with that cash. But on Fed policy specifically, there, there's been a lot of talk about the lag factor and, and how much room you know we have to run essentially on this data. What does the data today tell you about to what extent the Fed policy, the monetary policy, has started to take hold? 
Uh, it's certainly starting to kick in, but actually when we look at earnings, just in the past week, earnings have been revised up for 2024 uh, from 246 to 247. So the economy is holding in there. We obviously know the Atlanta GDP now is pointing to positive things for Q3. So it's kind of this perfect balance. Operating margins are up 1% from last year. No one expect that from 10.9% to 11.9%. So I think if we have a little softness in the labor market, which we're seeing, uh, the quit rates are starting to decline, the job openings, as we saw with the jolts yesterday, are starting to soften, that creates an environment where you're not going to have the wage price spiral, where you're not going to see this accelerating wage inflation. And that's going to give a lot of comfort to the Fed. That's going to keep their pedal off the metal, let them keep rates elevated like we saw in the late 90s, and have this kind of perfect uh, situation where the economy is slowing a little bit, but the, uh, the Fed is done tightening, and then companies can start to perform. And, uh, and I think there'll be a lot of rotation under the surface. So for those expecting uh, the Magnificent Seven to have a monster second half like they had the first half, I think they're going to be a little surprised. Tom, what do you think that upside looks like when we talk about where we are right now? The S&P is still above 4,400, adding to some of those gains today, up about half of a percent. What does that upside look like then between now and the end of the year? I think you're going to see chop, but I think all of these dips are going to be bought. Just like you saw, we had a 4% dip in, in August. Maybe you have another 3% or 2% dip uh, through, through the fall. Uh, but if you look at the S&P 500 was up about 20% through July, the Barclays Hedge Fund Index was only up 6%. So there's a lot of people that have to play catch up. Cash levels are coming down, but they're still elevated. Risk levels for institutional managers are still near the COVID low levels and the great financial crisis. So they haven't believed it and they're behind their benchmarks. So they're going to desperately look for areas to buy, but they're not going to chase those stocks that are up 30 and 50 and 70% like the Magnificent Seven. They're going to be looking for stocks that haven't yet participated where they can still find value and get their performance into the end of the year. And on that note, uh, Tom, you've laid out in your notes, dips must be bought, in quotes. <laughs> what specifically are you looking at? Well, we want to find uh, kind of those areas that have been impacted by interest rates, that have dramatically been impacted by interest rates. I think one thing that's kind of the obvious thing that no one's uh, really paying attention to is Treasury notes. And I know you did start the segment with that. Uh, but what you see is large speculators and traders are the most short the 10-year Treasury than they have been uh, since 2018. That was the last time we had a major low in the 10-year Treasury, a major high in yields. Also, commercial hedgers, which are always early and always right, have been buying the 10-year Treasury like crazy. That usually happens near inflection points. So I think uh, one interesting trade that, uh, that could be a surprise into year end after this trillion dollars of supply is finished coming on the market, which is been coming on over the last few weeks, is that the 10-year Treasury actually gets bid and yields compress. You're also going to see a tremendous amount of pension demand into year end that they can come in and lock in their long-term liabilities at four, four and a half, four, uh, four, four twenty-five, and they're going to want to do that for the long term. Tom, how should uh, investors be thinking about portfolio weight, right? Because we always thought about it with 60-40 when it comes to equities versus fixed income. We're seeing this opportunity. You're seeing opportunity in treasuries. Does that Waiting, does that still make sense? Uh, it depends. So usually when you think about 60-40, you're thinking about uh, corporate bonds as some part of the mix. Mm -hmm. The other thing I want to be distinct about is that uh, T-bills are overweight. So managers are still dramatically overweight treasuries, but on the short end of the curve getting 5%. Okay. They're not on the intermediate to long term. Mm -hmm. So uh, now is the opportunity to increase duration if you've been on the short end of the curve. I think the short end of the curve is extremely crowded. 
and to then move to those equities that haven't yet participated, some of the value stocks uh, that, that uh, are going to participate in the second half of the year that haven't really taken off in the first half of the year. Uh, Tom, one of the big stories we've been following is, of course, the slowdown that we have seen in China. Uh, there is not at the pace that we have seen in past years, and we've seen uh, Chinese listed, you know, ADRs move in conjunction with some of the data that's been coming out. Um, how do you view that trade right now? All right. Well, this is interesting. The two most crowded trades are long tech, and we think the Magnificent Seven will be fine, but they're going to underperform into the uh, second half of the year. But short China is the second most crowded trade for institutional investors. And we think the worse the headlines get, the more bullish it becomes, because the Chinese government has been acting at the margins to stimulate cutting mortgage rates we saw, uh, uh, cutting uh, short rates for banks, et cetera. But they haven't done the big bazooka. They haven't put money in consumers' pockets. And everyone, uh, that they're going to be forced to do that before the end of the year. And that's going to be a monster boon. The other thing, if you look at, the headlines have been bad, but if you look at China internet stocks, Alibaba, Pinduoduo, Tencent, their earnings have been off the charts. They were, EBITDA was up uh, in aggregate 30% year on year. Revenues were up about 7%. So I think once the Fed is winding down the tightening cycle, as we talked about earlier in the segment, you're going to see rates compressed. You're going to see the dollar weaken. You're going to see flows into emerging markets. And then you're going to get the China stimulus on top of that. It's a trade that no one wants to talk about right now. But I think as you look 12 months out, you're going to be extremely happy that you participated in emerging markets for the next 12, 18, 24 months. And we're back. Then I want to thank uh, Bansari Kamdar for including me her, in her article on Reuters. Uh, Anaya Mariam Rajesh and Ashwarya Vegopal also for including me in their articles on Reuters and Chibuke Ogu, Noor Zainab Hussein and Jonathan Stemple for including me in their article regarding what everyone's talking about, the Hurricane Adelia and the impact on insurance yesterday. Uh, and our article of the week is... The stock market is a story of, uh, our quote of the week is, the stock market is a story of cycles and of the human behavior that's responsible for overreactions in both directions. That's from Seth Klarman, a legendary value investor. Uh, this is the theme of what we've been talking about for four years on this podcast, taking advantage of periods of dislocation, periods of extreme. Uh, and before we get into our normal weekly stuff, what I wanna do quickly is uh, go to my interview with Mike because he's going to guide uh, for, you know, he deals with billionaires, he deals with centimillionaires, he deals with regular folks, but he gives some really valuable insurance, A, as it relates to the hurricane and special situations like that, and B, the mistakes that, uh, that we're all making uh, in insurance. And I think this is value. And I'm going to try to do some more of this value add stuff and interviews in the podcast going forward. A lot of you have asked for that. So here's our first one, and here's Mike Kelly. Okay, well, I'm here with Mike Kelly, and very excited to have him on. Uh, Mike runs the private client group for Smith Brothers Insurance. And I first met Mike around, uh, I guess, a handful of years ago, five-plus years ago. He moved to town, and we started playing hockey together, and we really didn't even know who, who we were. Uh, until we found out we were neighbors on the same street, uh, just uh, you know, a little bit up the way. And, uh, and we started uh, you know, really as hockey teammates. And then we joined the same country club in town and we played a lot of golf and we got to talking uh, over the summer that you know, we service a lot of the same clients. I know, Mike, you deal with ultra high net worth individuals with very specialized needs. 
And uh, the thing about ultra high net worth, I know a lot of my clients and I'm sure a lot of your clients have homes on the coasts where they have the highest risk. Uh, so I, I, I invited you on and I'm really grateful that you uh, took the time to come on because I think you could shed some advice that would be very helpful to those specialized clients as well as regular folks you know, who buy insurance and, and we really you know, don't know what we're doing and, and have, have certain questions. So um, you know, first, can, can you tell, your, uh, tell the listeners uh, what you do for clients and how you customize for you know, the high-end type specialty as well? Yeah, for sure. And, and thanks for having me on. Um, so, yeah, so we work with all levels of clients in terms of, you know, ultra high net worth into the billions. Um, but we try to bring that advice to, to everyday people as well. Um, and my specialty, as you said, is in uh, the private client group where I lead the practice. I've spent about a decade working in underwriting, leading different divisions at ultra high net worth carriers. Um, and really that underwriting approach is what gives us the opportunity to come up with bespoke solutions um, and really tailor a program that works in concert with uh, a family or an individual's wealth strategy. So let's start a little bit uh, with the subject du jour. You know, what's happening with the insurance in places like Florida right now? Um, you know, with the with the hurricane, and are are your clients self insuring? Are you finding them premiums? Are you finding underwriters to work with? Is it all in flux? Uh, uh, speak a little bit to that. Yeah, so Florida is um, it's at a turning point for a few main reasons. Obviously, the biggest one that we all see and hear about every day is the hurricanes and the weather, whether it's flooding or wind or storm surge or, or what have you. That's probably the most obvious. Um, just as big, if not bigger, issue within the state of Florida is the assignment of benefits clause, which allows contractors to um, and and attorneys, for that matter, to really inflate claims. Um, and contractors will come out and say, "Hey, you know, there was a hurricane. It looks like some damage." The clause allows for them to recoup their legal benefits if the insurance carrier denies and they go to suit and win. Right? So they're almost incentivized to drive up the cost of that claim, sue the carrier, and then the carrier will ultimately recoup them for their uh, their legal fees. And then the third one is really the reinsurance market, which has made a, made a significant shift over the last year, which, which they are now saying we are taking on less risk. Therefore, the primary insurance companies are forced to take that risk on. And also our premiums are going to be roughly 40% higher. So you look at those three things, all of which impact Florida. Um, some of them impact all states. And that really drives costs down to consumers. So um, my view after spending a couple of decades in this in this space is there hasn't been a market this hard in the last 20 years. And there's really no, no more important time than now to hire an expert that can help you navigate it. There are solutions out there that um, help folks determine, do I want to take on this wind exposure myself? Um, or do I want to seed it off to an insurance company? And what's the cost for that? And that's really a conversation between a, a risk advisor, a family office team. Oftentimes it's with the portfolio managers to say, all right, here are the various components. We want to, we want to grow and protect this wealth um, based on where some of these premiums are today. Maybe it makes sense for somebody who has a, a balance sheet of you know, several hundred million or, or even tens of millions to say, I'm going to take that risk on myself and plan for it. And other times they look and say, you know, I'm, I'm going to see this off to an insurance company. And I think the cost um, makes sense because I can take that money and reinvest it and do better 
with uh, with Tom Hayes, perhaps managing your portfolio. <laughs> well, thank you for that. <laughs> um, so that's very interesting. So as a broker, you not only have the advantage that you can shop their requests to many different carriers and ultimately get them the best deal, but you can actually, in talking to them, say, hey, you may want to self-insure this risk, but definitely let's, let's lay off this risk to the insurance company because the pricing is reasonable here, but it's unreasonable here. And you can customize kind of a, an insurance package based on where they live and based on where their needs are. And that's where you, you add a tremendous value to, to the end user. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if there's a home that's new built, new windows, doors, roof is strapped down, it's all up to code and it's built like a fortress and the best solutions that might be available in the market come with a million and a half hurricane deductible. Um, yet the premiums are, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. They may say, I'll take that risk on in totality rather than just for the first million and a half. Whereas somebody else who, you know, may have a multi-million dollar home in Naples that's negatively elevated, has some flood loss history and hasn't been updated, even if those premiums are a few hundred thousand dollars, that's not a bet that they necessarily want to place on their balance sheet. They're going to transfer that to an insurance company and know that if anything were to happen, they're going to be made whole at least on the, you know, for the property side of it. So yeah, it's a very, it's a very individual decision of, you know, which is when you get a team of advisors together, we can determine what's the cost benefit here. Um, and what's the likelihood of loss, I think is the bigger piece and what risk management levels can we take to, um, to help them procure insurance at a reasonable cost that aligns with their wealth strategy. And when everything's working in concert together, really what we're doing is helping people make confident decisions so that when a loss does occur, they're not shocked and surprised when there's a gap there that's unforeseen. So having everybody work together um, to solve for that at least gives us confidence. I know when clients call me, it's either covered or it's not. We talked about it. We made this decision strategically. Um, so there's way fewer surprises down the line. Yeah. So this is very specialized and you've seen so many different scenarios over a decade and a half. Now, look, we I know for a fact we have billionaires listening to this podcast. We have many centimillionaires, multi-centimillionaires, many decamillionaires, and mass affluent. You know, a, a lot of folks that are you know worth a million to ten million dollars, uh, and and some others. Uh, do you work with regular clients? You know, let's say there's someone listening who's got uh, a million dollar house, makes a few hundred thousand dollars a year. Do you work with those type of clients? as well or do you only do the bespoke stuff and if you do what is the advantage for them like calling you versus calling geico or travelers and and getting a policy themselves like do you um do you save them money do you improve their claims results what do you do for the smaller type of uh person who needs insurance yeah so we do so we have teams that work on the, the bespoke solutions that i talked about that are super high super high net worth and even ultra high net worth and then there are are um, sort of Main Street business, right? Folks that are emerging wealth, emerging professionals, and there's different threats that that those folks are faced with. So I think the, the best advice I can give that group of clientele is um, sort of don't be, um, don't be fooled by some of the commercials that we see. I talk to clients all the time and I tell them, you can save, you know, it's like, can you save me money? And they say, we can save you money either today and limit your coverage and have unforeseen gaps in the future, or I can make sure we save you a lot of money when a claim comes in, whether it's a property or a liability claim. So I think a lot of times when folks are emerging or their net worth is not where they think it will be throughout the course of their career, they make concessions for short-term gains and it leaves them wildly exposed, you know, especially 
in your example, if you if somebody has a million dollar house is likely a high earner and their future earnings are going to exponentially grow their net worth over time. If you don't have enough liability exposure and you have a car accident and you hurt somebody and now you're held liable, let's call it a $5 million settlement. When you have $1 million of liability coverage, that other 4 million is going to either come out of any personal assets you have um, and or garnishing wages to satisfy that judgment over time. So transferring that risk to an insurance company is not necessarily about what you have in the bank today. It's about what, what do you have in the bank today? What's your current net worth? And what, what's the potential future earnings that could be a risk if something were to happen? And when you look at it from a strategic lens, those are hundreds of dollars to save millions of dollars down the line. Yeah. Um, and it's, um, it's, it's a big, you know, big gap that we often uncover early on. And I, I would imagine when you, let, let's say it's like the average person, whether they're worth 20 million bucks or they're worth 2 million bucks, uh, they come to you and they say, Hey, here's all my insurance. You take a look at this and tell me, have you ever seen situations where you're like, why did they sell you all this stuff? You don't need this. Let's clean this up. Uh, you, you, you're paying too much here, but you're not covered enough there. Do you see a lot of that where uh, other agencies just kind of completely got it wrong, either didn't know what they were doing or gave them bad advice and you're able to fix that for clients and set them up properly? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and we do see it often. And I think it's, it's, it could be because the other agent didn't ask enough questions. But a lot of times what we find is, is a client will have outgrown their existing insurance program. Um, and over time, if you're not re-engaging, at least annually, but oftentimes with complex portfolios, it's quarterly, to make sure that the carrier that you chose early on is still suitable for where your current lifestyle is, that the design of the program makes sense. Um, and one of the things that we see all too often is ultra high net worth uh, families buying attachment points. So having very low deductibles, call it 10, 15, $20,000. And when you have a conversation with them, they have zero intention of ever filing a homeowner's claim or an auto claim or watercraft or collections claim with any sort of 10 to 15, $20,000. They're looking at it as catastrophic, catastrophic loss coverage, which is the right way to think about it. Yeah. But at the same time, they have a huge exposure on the liability side. Uh, and I mean grossly underinsured to the tunes of, of tens of millions of dollars. So when you help a client and their advisors sort of zoom out, take a look at it at a very high level and identify where some of these attachment points are and where the gaps are on the higher end, um, to a person, every one of them is like, I would be very comfortable with a quarter of a million dollar deductible, um, but I am very uncomfortable taking on the risk of 50, $100 million to a liability event. So it's things like that where you look at it and oftentimes you're just taking, you're investing some premium over here on the property, reallocating it to liability. And now you can stand back and say, this aligns with their overall wealth strategy. There's no tail risk here that they're not willing to take. Um, and they're moving forward again with confidence, knowing that anything under a hundred thousand is, is on me from a property standpoint or higher, depending on the client. But I know that if, if there's a boat accident, if somebody, one of my employees hurt themselves or, there's a, maybe there's a slip and fall or a car accident. I know that I'm covered and there's not a $10 million judgment hanging over my head. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful. Tell me uh, a few quick questions here. What are the biggest mistakes that wealthy people make when they're buying their insurance? Now you're pre predominantly personal lines. So like house, property, uh, auto, is there anything else uh, I'm missing? Collections. So large art collections, that's yep. a big 
that's a big gap we often uncover. People may have collected three to five million, maybe more, um, over the course of a year. Now their total collection is 20 or 30 million. And they haven't necessarily kept up with appraisals or even notified their insurance broker or Maybe the insurance broker is not keeping inventory on it. So a lot of times when we engage with a client, we look at a total inventory, you realize there's potentially five to $10 million worth of art that's uninsured. Yeah. Um, and if it's not listed specifically, there's there's sublimits on the homeowner's policy. So there's very limited cover. Um, and the other, the, the other biggest mistake, which we just talked about a little bit is self-insuring for liability, which is, is infinite effectively, right? We don't know what the yeah. cap is. What we do know is that for the last... Um, for the last decade, every year, records have been broken um, for liability judgments against high net worth individuals. And that's a few different reasons why. Number one is when a, when a member of the high net worth or ultra high net worth community goes in front of a jury, they will not get a jury of their peers. So there's right. a bit of a social sentiment that's playing into this. Um, and the, um, the judgments are setting precedent year over year, right? So they're looking back and saying, we have case law to set, tell us that this one is actually worth, you know, $500,000 per working year for this individual's the rest of their life. Those nuclear verdicts are, are becoming all too common. So those are two of the areas, just, you know, yeah. proper management of their assets, as well as the liability side are huge gaps that we see. Yeah. And is that the same for regular folks uh, that, that may uh, uh, be reaching out to you? that is it they they underestimate the liability or do you see uh, another big mistake that the smaller clients make yeah both i mean underestimating the liability is one but but also on on um on that clientele a lot of times it's filing smaller claims it can be very punitive to uh to an individual to have a history of claims that are smaller in scope an insurance company would much prefer to pay one five hundred thousand dollar claim than three twenty thousand dollar claims um yeah. those attritional losses and and also for the client their surcharge it hurts their eligibility and that can be the difference between having a, a really broad contract to be there when something terrible happens versus being in an un unregulated market trying to figure out oh boy do i have coverage now that this flood just happened or this this uh fires took my whole house out all right, I've got a I've got a crazy question for you now. We got to keep it interesting here. What what's the strangest insurance request you've ever received? Oh, uh, we've had a lot. Um, the the weirdest one, which um, was there were not uh, a ton of underwriters clamoring to to write this, but we had a client come to us ask asking if um, if we could find coverage for horse semen. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was pretty much my response too at the time. Um, yeah, so they, they bred horses. They they had a, a stud that they were very proud of, and they valued it at about five million dollars, and were going to be transporting it and ultimately using it at some point. And um, yeah, that was a, that was an interesting one because every time I called an underwriter, that was the exact response I got. Oh my goodness, that's hysterical! I could understand why they would want to ensure that. That's big business. Um, uh, one, uh, number one bit of advice that you, you give to new clients when they start to work with you. I know we've touched on a lot of these, but, uh, something they should expect when they sit down or, or call you. Yeah. So I, my advice to everybody, whether it's us or your existing broker or somebody else is hire the broker first. We've been conditioned as consumers to, uh, create, you know, kayaks of the world or other insurance comparing sites for very basic elementary renters and motorcycle coverage that might work when you have more to protect 
just like just like you do with your clients, Tom, hire the, the manager that you believe in, hire the broker in our space and allow them to create competition for you in the marketplace. Um, yeah. On the other side, when when you have brokers competing with one another, which we won't do, we, we will either work with a client exclusively or we'll we'll be a plan B. We'll look over their shoulder. We'll give them objective advice. And there's no obligation for them to work with us whatsoever, um, because if we get into a competitive environment with brokers, all that does is confuse the market. We end up talking to the same underwriters. Maybe they have one extra piece of information, and now the client uh, is is viewed more viewed less favorably uh, in the marketplace. So, um, interview a few of them, ask the hard questions, um, have them sign NDAs if there's some sensitive information that you'd like to dig deep, and uh, with your broader team of advisors, feel confident that you've hired the right team. And if they couple that with a world class experience. Um, you should be in good shape and you should get the most com competitive pricing for sure. But more importantly, the broadest coverage available on the market. Great. And now would you be, I appreciate you uh, spending the time and, and helping my audience. Would you be willing to take calls or emails from listeners who may have specific questions or even want to do business with you at some point? Uh, is that a possibility? Yeah, of yeah. course. So why, why don't you uh, go ahead and give the best way that people can reach out to you directly and uh, speak to you or email or however that works. Yeah, um, and, and we do this all the time. So I work with family offices, CPAs, wealth advisors. If you're just looking for a piece of information, if you were presented with something and you want somebody to look at it, over, you know, similar to what I was just describing, by all means, reach out. My, uh, my email is mkelly, M-K-E-L-L-Y at smithbrothersusa.com. Uh, my cell phone is 914-513-8073. I am on LinkedIn. I am on the other platforms just a lot less, a uh, lot less frequently. Uh, but email and cell phone is certainly the best way to get a hold of me. Great. Well, thank you so much for spending the time. Is there anything else we should add before we wrap up? No, I think if you're feeling the pain, it, this is uh, it's not you. It's the hardest property and casualty market in the last twenty years. Um, find somebody to help you help to help you navigate it, and uh, you know we'll navigate the storm together. Now, if they're in the tri-state area, and I know we got people all over, do you take them out for golf if they become a client? I mean, you know, I, I got to know these things. This I mean, if I have to go out and play some golf for business now, <laughs> I've been known to do that from time to time. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for, thanks for, uh, thanks for coming over and uh, sharing your, your expertise with us, and we'll see you soon. Uh, thanks for having me. And we're back. So I, I know a lot of you will have found that pretty helpful. We're going to move back to the market stuff. And um, this was an interview with the Generac CEO, Aaron Jaegerfeld, uh, uh, talking generators and mid-natural uh, disasters. We don't have time for it this week, but you can go to CNBC television on YouTube and pull it up. Uh, that's a position we've been talking about, fell to 80%. Uh, earnings and cash flow have been relatively steady. We covered that last week. We think that's an opportunity moving forward. As always, everything we talk about is opinion, not advice. Go to hedgefundtips.com, click on terms. We don't know your financial situation. We deal exclusively with accredited investors uh, and, and institutions. So uh, talk to a financial advisor before you do anything, click on terms, but uh, we're just sharing our opinion and what we're doing, which may not be suitable for you. Uh, despite what Powell says, the Fed is likely done. We agree. Uh, here's another note from Evercore. Powell sounds like a man who thinks he's probably done raising rates. Uh, and then Amazon told its workers, CEO says, uh, if you think you're going to stay remote, quote, it's probably not going to work out for you. 
and that's been in line. We were ahead of the curve on that with Vornado. Uh, that position is probably up now 50, 60% in just a few months, and that's gonna work higher over time, probably consolidate for a little while and then move higher. The theme, as we talked a little bit about with Nicole that we wanna benefit from is those stocks that got pounded due to the aggressive rate hiking cycle. Because as that cycle ends, even though rates may not come down right away, he may keep rates elevated. Once it's done, those groups that got most battered, even though the businesses stayed relatively strong, are gonna be the ones to have the biggest recoveries in percentage terms. Here's uh, rent growth nosedive again in August as tenants gain leverage over landlords. Uh, this was part of our thesis for inflation. We've seen the owner's equivalent rent already play out in the last few months. Uh, we were we were probably the only ones talking about that in January and February. I think uh, Tom Lee at Fundstrat was probably talking about it in the first quarter as well. Uh, and that's why he's been right as well. So Fed's Bostic says U.S. interest rates are high enough. We agree. 3M, big breakthrough there. That's been a name that we talked about uh, uh, pretty regularly. Now they're quantifying. They got the PFAS lawsuits out of the way. They've got the uh, earplugs lawsuits uh, uh, working out. They'll have some other miscellaneous lawsuits, et cetera. But the whole thesis there was they generate $5 billion a year in free cash flow, even if the worst case scenario happened, which you know analysts had at $100 billion, some analysts had $50 billion, even the conservative ones were at, at 30. Now it looks like it's going to be 16 total. We're getting quantification. The stock's starting to go up. Oh, and by the way, they got an upgrade. Opinion follows trend. The stock went from 90 to 107. Now everyone's upgrading it. People are going to start chasing it. This business has compounded capital at double digits, 20% plus for the last 20 years. We like this story and, uh, and uh, we're ahead of the curve on the quantification there. So now this thing can start to move. Uh, Cooper Standard has been obviously one of our home runs. A lot of new people listening in this week. So we're just trying to create a little bit of context uh, and um, not take a lot of excess time. But uh, we suggested Cooper Standard in May of last year. It's an auto supplier cyclical business huge operating leverage on the semiconductors coming back and the production coming back, uh, which has happened. The stock went from five to 22. Now with the UAW strike, uh, it's down to 15 or $16. Uh, and I think as that gets resolved, we're gonna be back over 22 and beyond. The model that we've shared re regularly on public media appearances and on the podcast, if they can do, um, we think that if production gets back to 85% of 2017 levels, which we believe it has reason to get higher than that because in 2017, you didn't have 80 some odd millennials starting housing formation and family formation. Uh, we think the business can earn what it earned at 100% of production in 2017, which was $7 a share. At that point in time, they were trading at $146. Uh, we, we bought at $5.50 is when we put it out. Uh, so that's been a multi-bagger so far, but at $7 a share, if you look to 24 to 36 months out, if you get a trough multiple, that's a, that's, you know, 10 times, it's a $70 stock. If you get a peak multiple, you could have 140, uh, you could have more cut it in half. If you're conservative, it's still a multi-bagger, even from these levels, which we're excited about. And we continue to see the data catching up to the thesis we laid out to you a year ago, which is European car sales now jumping 17% as growth streak reaches a full year. And by the way, for those of you saying, well, they're an auto supplier, everyone's going to EV, they make 20% more per EV than they do per ICE. So even if that plays out, we're going to make more money, which is not even baked into our models. We're pretty happy about that. 
Fidelity says Chinese equities remain a top call. As we covered last week, the aggregate of internet companies, our, our biggest uh, exposure there is Alibaba. Um, uh, the aggregate of the top uh, companies had 30% EBITDA growth this quarter, 7% revenue growth. And meanwhile, uh, the media couldn't be more pessimistic on China, but that is changing. Secretary Raimondo uh, going there this week uh, and a lot of actions by the Chinese government to shore things up. Uh, Alipay declares live commerce ambitions in pre-IPO growth chase. So live commerce is a huge thing in China. Think um, QVC on the internet. They sell stuff like crazy through that method. They are rocking and rolling with that. And that's going to make the sum of the parts. Alibaba splitting up into six parts to get the huge benefit of the cloud growth. Alipay being one of the biggest payment systems, if not the biggest in all of Asia. Uh, uh, and, and all the sum of the parts, we've estimated that the fair value of this thing over the next uh, 36 plus months is 280 to 320 plus. Uh, and we think uh, China is going to have one more parabolic run before the demographic cliff uh, serves them the same fate as Japan. But if you remember in the 80s, if you missed that last four years, you missed everything. That last parabolic run before their population, the bulk of their population turned 40 was parabolic. Stocks were up 10x, et cetera. And we think we're going to see a similar story in China. And the pessimism right now couldn't set things up better because the first buyers are the shorts. And, uh, and then opinion follows trend. China stocks climb after authorities attempt to lure investors with stock tax cut, other moves. Look, they're going to keep putting out these... Uh, little tiny things every day and they're incrementally helping. At some point, they're going to do money in consumers' pockets, whether that's giving them consumption vouchers, which would be the best thing. They should do a half trillion of that like the rest of the world did. Or if they do tax cuts or mortgage rate cuts to uh, indirectly do the same thing that vouchers would do, it's the same exact thing. And they've said that they're going to do as such. China pledges to speed up Fiscal spending to boost the economy. This is what we've been waiting for. The bazooka comments come before expected monthly meeting of the Politburo. So that's a big deal. And uh, we'll see how big the bazooka comes. But the key is, is the businesses continue to perform. The businesses continue to do well. So this is just an accelerant to a fire that's already starting in a good way. Uh, Ramundo said, uh, U.S. does not want to decouple from China. Uh, so they had a successful meeting. So the, these headlines are changing now from loggerheads to now communication. Communication will lead to productivity. Productivity will lead to growth. Uh, U.S.-China agree on steps to ease trade tensions. You know, if you had asked if this would be a headline three weeks ago, I think everyone would have said no. Uh, China's post-pandemic economic recovery spurs growth across the Internet sector, boosting e-commerce, ride-hailing, and online travel. China moves to stabilize finances of troubled shadow bank. China's factory activity sparks hope that slump is bottoming out. Manufacturing still in contraction. I think it was 49.7, so by you know 30 basis points. But PMI actually beat estimates, which is a leading indicator. So that's a, that's a positive uh, thing, showing things moving in the right direction, starting to confirm what we're seeing from companies' earnings reports that actually do business in China and their commentary on the last eight to 10 weeks. China cuts down payment and mortgage rates and stimulus drives, so they're now starting to take aggressive actions. China's economy is perking up. Cheap money may have helped. By the way, 
This is from our resident China bear, Rejma Kapadia over at Barron. She's now putting out balanced articles on China, which is really incredible to see. That's the sign of a good, good journalist. So uh, uh, those of you who've been with us for a while, I know if, uh, you know, anyway, so that's that. Uh, Carl continue to put this out. U.S. is making up to $12 billion available for automakers and suppliers to retrofit facilities to produce EVs. Energy Secretary Granholm, Granholm says he does not know if the funding will have an impact on collective bargaining by United Auto Workers Union. So this may be a backdoor way where the government is saying to the big three, hey, take care of our unions, we'll give you the money back in an indirect way, and this could help us get to a resolution sooner than later, which is positive for Cooper Standard. Morgan Stanley, based on our investor survey, it appears consensus expects a materially lengthy UAW strike with wage inflation in the range of 20 to 40%. In our, our opinion, much of the negative potential outcomes of the UAW negotiations may be priced in. That's from Art Jonas, one of the best uh, auto analysts in the business. Thanks to my buddy Zach for sending that over. Also, thanks to Adam for always sending me the great stuff that he sends. And thanks to Rick, who sends the great stuff he sends. You know who you are, ladies and gentlemen. Um, Morgan Stanley, as we get closer to the end of the year, the pain of being underweight equities and the resultant lack of performance is going to intensify forcing positive fund flows. This is the, the thesis that I was making with Nicole, with Shauna and Akiko, um, and, uh, and I'll probably touch on with Charles tomorrow. If you look at the S&P through July was up around 20%, the Barclays hedge fund index was up 6%. So there's gonna be a lot of chasing. And if you're a manager, put yourself in their shoes. Are you gonna chase those things that are already up 30, 50, 70%, like the Magnificent Seven? Are you going to look under the surface for value where you can make up and catch the next things that are going to be up 30, 50, and 70%? And, uh, and I think it's the latter, and that's why we went through uh, quite a few companies uh, last week in detail that you can take advantage of and take a look at. And I'll show you. You can find all the articles that we ever write at hedgefundtips.com. You just go to um, you know, hedgefundtips.com, and then you scroll down to category. Under commentary, uh, you could also find all of our past podcasts and videocasts. Click here for videocast weekly recap or uh, the podcast button if you just like to listen to it. But the videocast is better because you can see all the charts and, and the articles and the headlines that we're talking about. Um, okay, moving right along, we have... Um, Charlie Bellello put out this um, U.S. monthly rent. This is in line with what we were saying about owner's equivalent rent. So on to our article of the week. So far, so good. Stock market and sentiment results. And then we'll get to our Ask Me Anything questions, which we do every single week. Um, so in our July 27th weekly note, you can find it here. And also in the podcast and videocast, we talked about a three to 5% correction in the month of August. We also said we expected these dips would be bought due to the fact that most managers underperformed in the first half and were still overweight cash and T-bills and underweight equities relative to their 20-year history. So you can see that right here. Last week, we went through a sampling of the tremendous opportunities still to be had for those who feel like they missed the boat. You can find that article here. It's called At the Starting Gate, Stock Market and Sentiment Results. 
And the basic theme was, you know, we covered a ton of stocks that are down 50 to 80% that are high quality businesses whose revenues and um, cash flows and earnings power have not been impaired anywhere close to what the stock price has been impaired, which is why we love public markets over private markets, because some of the prices being offered for these businesses would never be even entertained in the private markets. And here, uh, people can't give them away fast enough, and we're gratefully taking every share that they're willing to give us. Uh, so go through that. And then uh, the podcast, you can go for further color. We went through the... Uh, uh, media appearances. Um, this shows you here with 40, 48% of global stocks below their pre-COVID highs. Everyone's chasing the five or six that have already run to new highs. Why not look under the surface for the opportunities of businesses that have grown, you know, 50%, 100% earnings, cash flow, revenue, and yet their prices are still below four years ago prices. And that's where the opportunity is. Uh, and that's why we love what, what we do. We, we skip to work, as Warren Buffett says, who turned 93 this week, by the way. Uh, it's like a treasure hunt every day, and we love what we do. This is the um, uh, composite cycle for the pre-election year. So we had our correction in August, uh, and then we start to uh, build back up, grind a little sideways. All the opportunity is going to be under the surface. Managers playing catch up to retail got it right this time. Risk levels still at COVID lows and great financial crisis lows. Cash levels coming down, but still elevated. All of these things set up for more upside. Then you saw earnings. My friend Seth Golden put this out. Estimates were revised up again this week, another dollar from 246 to 247. If you remember at the beginning of the year, we were saying, just watch earnings. Everyone was saying earnings have to come down 20%. They were all 100% wrong. You remember the famous triple break putt. I remember in the fall of last year, they said, we're going to go down, then we're going to go up, then we're going to go down. Well, they were totally wrong. We just went up, 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 and they missed the entire thing. One of the worst calls in the history of the stock market. But leaving that aside, um, uh, operating margins are going up, up 100 basis points in the last year. That surprised a lot of people from 10.9% to 11.9%. GDP is still strong. And then we talked about City and uh, uh, Crown Castle. Why? because they're beat down, but their earnings power and cash flows are not. They're just hammered as a function of being in the uh, crosshairs of the Fed tightening cycle, which is now ending. So as these things recover to normalized levels with the Fed getting out of the way, you, you know, just to get back to par, you have 100% gain. And then as the businesses continue to grow and perform, uh, you're going to see more and more. So we like these kind of no-brainers. Same with uh, TLT, which is basically the 10-year note or, or a slightly longer duration than the 10-year note. <coughs> and we covered this with um, Shauna at Yahoo. But this is the data that we're pointing to when commercials are super long. They're always early and right. This, the last time they were this long was 2018. The last time hedge funds were this short bonds was 2018, right before a huge rally. Same thing happening right now. This thing's starting to tick up. You're going to see pensions come in before the end of the year and lock in that 4% for their long-term liabilities. And people are going to say, what happened? Why are, why are bonds going up? This makes no sense. Supply and demand, the trillion dollars of supply has been uh, abnormally uh, affecting the yield market in the month of August with lighter volume. Uh, as that demand kicks in and the supply is soaked up, you're going to see what happens over the next three to four months. 
Uh, Baba update. Uh, this is very interesting from Goldman Sachs. Quote, our prime broker data shows signs of capitulatory selling in the first three weeks of August. We're starting to see some institutions use recent weakness as a buying opportunity. I am watching for the group to stabilize and inflect higher. We haven't seen this type of inflection since 2016. We'll take a look at what happened in 2016 with Alibaba. And uh, there you go, 2016, you had the same type of horrible low, uh, down, then recheck, then you shot up, then you did this horrible back test, which we just went through. Uh, and then you were off to the races for a parabolic move. It looks like here it was from 90 to 200 in less than a year, uh, 110 points. I think we're going to be straight to 180 once we get past 120. Uh, and that could be sooner than people expect. So we're excited about that. Um, back to this. Uh, Cooper Standard Update, J just some color from uh, Jonas's note. This was really interesting. So uh, for, for the Detroit three OEMs, it's important to put labor costs into perspective. And you, if you remember, I did this with Bud Light when they got smoked uh, for, for their woke ads. Um, it came out to 2% of global revenue and Modelo's probably already soaked that up. But leaving that aside, quote, we estimate UAW represented labor costs account for around 4% of global revenues for the D Detroit three. By the way, Funny story. I was sitting at the uh, New York Stock Exchange waiting for Josh to pick me up. And um, one of these, I overheard one of the security guards talking to another security guard when you walk in. Great guys. <laughs> and uh, I literally couldn't, I couldn't believe this. He's like, did you hear how much money Disney lost? Because we like Disney. We talked about it. <clears throat> it's cheap here. Best park franchise, best content franchise, mismanaged. Iger will fix it, et cetera, et cetera. And he goes, do you hear how much money Disney lost? They're toast. They're absolutely toast. He's like, go woke, go broke. And, um, and then literally two seconds later, and he's like, they're, you know how screwed they are? He's like, I was there two weeks ago with my grandkids. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. The guy literally said this. I was there two weeks ago. And he goes, you know, the lines were only 20 minutes. The lines used to be like an hour for every ride. Dude. It's the middle of August. No one goes to Disney, Orlando, Florida in the middle of August, number one. Number two, you just answered your own question. You hate Disney because they went broke, because they went woke, but yet you still spent money to bring your grandkids there. Why? Because in America, if you don't bring your children and your grandchildren to Disney, social services will come and take your children away. You're, you're, you're a bad parent or grandparent. That's just the way it works. So uh, they have a moat. They're going through some tough times. We love uh, uh, getting high quality patients when they're on the operating table and then watching them recover. That's our knitting. And um, uh, so I just thought I'd share that. But it was just so funny. He was so down on Disney. And then he's like, and two weeks ago when I was there with my grandchildren, I, I, like you can't make this stuff up. It, the, people's emotional uh, view versus dispassionate, rational views it just happens over and over and over, which is job security for a guy like me. Love it. So um, nonetheless, so what he's saying is we, rep we estimate UAW represented later labor costs account for around 4% of the global revenues of the, of the uh, Detroit Three. Uh, Ford's UAW labor bill accounts for 
8% of Ford global revenue. Bottom line, he says, quote, we'd be a buyer of both Ford and GM right now. And during the negotiations, as we believe, even a difficult outcome can catalyze far bigger changes to strategy and capital discipline that will eventually yield significant and stronger lasting benefits to shareholders that exceed today's labor headlines. What he's basically saying is it, it's going to come out to 150 basis points in the worst case scenario. They can pass you know, 1% on to customers. They can cut costs. It's not, it's not as big a deal as everyone's making it out to be. And when I saw it in the context of 4%, I thought it would be like 30%, 4%. By the way, I don't know if I agree with his buy GM and buy Ford. I'd rather buy the picks and the shovels, Cooper Standard. That's just me personally. But uh, nonetheless, um, I like the way he quantifies the facts from the emotion around the UAW strike. Uh, sentiment data, retail investors are still showing trepidation. That's a good setup for the markets. Um, fear and greed is neutral at 51 and National Association of Active Investment Managers got completely flushed out at the wrong time. I mean, it's mind boggling. It took them a 4% correction to knock 65% of them out of the market from 100% equity exposure for active investment managers down to 35. You can't make this stuff up. And guess what happens now? The same thing that happens every, every single time. Uh, they guess who sold in the hole and is going to have to chase up yet again, the institutional managers. Here it comes. Um, so that's that. Uh, by the way, after being highly exclusive since 2019 and close to new investors prior to that, our business is expanding to serve an additional tier of clients below $5 million. The response we've received since opening up to a million dollar plus accounts in the last month or so has dramatically exceeded our expectations. Those who've been listening know there's been a wait list. Uh, if you miss that round, we expect to reopen to the current waiting list uh, on or around September 15th. Those of you who've already submitted your documents and set up your account at Interactive Brokers should be ready to fund on or around that day. We'll notify you in the order you sent in your documentation. You are confirmed for this round, no matter what. And anyone looking to move ahead or uh, get interested should click on this link. Contact us at hedgefundtips.com for further details, um, etc. So moving right along, earnings, transport sector, top 30 weights. Earnings estimates in the last 60 days have actually gone up for both 2023 and 2024, up 31 basis points. That's good to see. And retail, people couldn't be more negative on retail right now. And guess what's happened in the last 60 days? The cumulative earnings power of the 30 stocks was revised up by 3.92% for this year and 3.19% for next year. So there's going to be some opportunity there because it's getting pretty pessimistic in that group. The main economic indicators that we want to look at for this week are jolts came down. That gives uh, co cover for the Fed to uh, certainly pause in September. And probably by November, they'll have enough data to keep pausing and they're basically done. Uh, core PCE came in uh, lower than expected. That's good. That gives them cover. GDP for Q2 was revised down. That's good. That gives them cover. And um, continuing claims were higher than expected. That's good. It's showing some softening. That's Goldilocks, like we talked about with Nicole. Uh, initial jobless claims came in higher than expected. That's good. Um, and inflation came, core, I'm sorry, PCE price index came in line with expectations. 
Chicago PMI came in better than expected. So a lot of the right things are going down. The, the other right things are going up. So tomorrow we get the jobs report, which is going to be very important. Uh, would be nice to see it come in a little lower than this number, but not too much lower, just Goldilocks so the Fed can get out of the way. And I'll be paying attention to the labor force participation rate. We want to see more and more supply of labor and obviously the average hourly earnings. So we know there's a cap on wages and we're starting to see that with the quit rates, with the jolts, giving the employers a bit more leverage than they've had. So now on to our ask me anything questions. Paul Falcone says, Dollar Tree and Dollar General have been slammed lately. I'm beginning to get excited about Dollar General. Just curious what you think about Dollar General and the dollar store space in general. Also, any thoughts on the USA Ryder Cup team makeup? Really appreciate everything. And I'll continue to share with friends and family. Uh, I'll start with the Ryder Cup because that's the easy question. Um, I think it's a damn shame that uh, Bryson DeChambeau is not part of this. I think, uh, you know, the guy shot a 58. Uh, DJ should be part of this. Uh, hopefully they'll all come together because uh, uh, I think that's a loss. So leaving that aside, let's get to Dollar General and Dollar Tree. I guess your real question is Dollar General. And I think they were down a lot today also. So here's the thing. So Dollar General, since 2010, it was a 10-bagger, no, 12-bagger. And now it's fallen, um, looks like about, uh, not quite 50%, only 40%. Um, I don't like busted growth stories, to be honest with you. Um, let's take a look, because you just never know where the selling's gonna get in. The people that were in this were just chasing it, chasing it, chasing it. So now they're, they're all on leverage, they're all getting smoked out. Um, it's going to take time to form a bottom, but let's look at the underlying business. Cash flows have continued to grow, but a lot of that got priced in. You know, when you when you're dealing with something, that's why you always have to zoom out to make money. It's like, wow, it's down fifty percent. So what? You know, it's up, you know, twelve hundred percent. So um, it priced in a lot of this growth already, and that's why these type of things I'm not in love with. I would probably, candidly, just looking at it, I'd probably set an alert to start to look at it if it got under 100 bucks. You just need to destroy all these people that got the free ride before it gets interesting. And it may never get down to that. And as I always say, I'm perfectly fine with errors of omission. I am not okay with errors of commission. But, you know, you look at cash flow per share, it's been basically flat for the last four years. For a stock that's up 12, 1,200%, uh, that doesn't excite me. Earnings per share have been flat. You know, you don't pay up for a company that has flat earnings. Um, you know, yes, it's only trading it now, I guess 13, 14 times expected, but it's a busted growth story. Uh, sales, gross margins, okay. I guess their guidance was probably weak today. I didn't look at their, I don't really care about the quarterly. They're a compounder of capital, but a lot of that's already priced in. So, yeah, they meet all the criteria of wanting to get interested, except for the fact that a lot of it was priced in. So for me, it's a wait and see. I, I definitely need to see this in the low hundreds before I take another look, and I may never get that opportunity. But I think your, your thinking is right. It's great quality business. The problem is, is a lot of that great quality uh, already got priced in before we um, 
spoke. Let's just see if Dollar Tree is any different. I, don't, I doubt it. Uh, yeah, same type of move. Uh, not ready for this. I would just wait and see. And if it gets away from you, it gets away from you. But good question. Um, I like the the logic framework. Ivor Barry asks, uh, thanks for the content you put out every week. Personally, I think it's the best investment podcast I've come across ever. Me too. No, I'm kidding. Thanks so much. I am very grateful for that. Can I get you to comment on two names of Crocs and Hims and Hers Health? All right, let's start with Crocs. Crocs, I missed. As I was shelling out money every month for my kids to get new Crocs and new uh, divots, they call them, that they put all these things like Chick-fil-A and Dunkin' Donuts, like all this weird stuff they put in the front of the shoes. They put all these little dots in the front of their, like all the swimmers wear them. And I get, I guess swimmers and chefs. I mean, I, I have no idea. And housekeepers, but like, I don't know. So it's, <laughs> anyway, I'm, it was down at like 50 bucks. I kind of was interested. And then I was like, this is a fad. I've seen Crocs come and go like every five years, people get excited. I don't like fad shoes. Like a friend of mine was pitching me on ONON. I was like, congratulations, you have the next Allbirds. You know, it's just like, you know, I bought like six pairs of Allbirds during COVID. There was nothing else to do. It's, it's just a fat, but I didn't buy the stock, thank God. Um, you know, most of the cases I want to buy the stock, not the, not the product. Uh, I think in, in the case of these type shoe fads, I feel a little differently. Maybe Crocs has some durability, but look, the thing is, again, this is already up. It was up from five to 183, so 30X or something like that. Do, do I want to get their scraps after they got all the growth? No, I'm not in the scraps business. So um, let's just take a look at the business because you're going to say, well, Tom, but it's trading at a low multiple, blah, blah, blah. So, all right. So their cash flow has collapsed last year. It's not collapsed, but it was down like 25%. Um, revenues went up, earnings went up. They're issuing shares. I don't like that. Top line is fine, but because they issued shares, it gets a little bit wrung out. I mean, these things, they, these things are hot, like huge, huge return on capital, huge quality business. Uh, PE is, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, this is a tough one because it's a low multiple. It's expected to have high growth, but it's like, how many pairs of Crocs are you going to put in your closet? Like, I feel like everyone who's going to buy them already has 10 pairs with all the divots they could ever possibly want. Um, and by the way, they're only going to grow at 7% next year and 10% for the next five years. So, you know, 10 times multiple is actually not that terrible considering they're only going to grow at 10%. So one peg, it's a little cheap. So maybe you could get a 15 times multiple. What's been their average PE for the last 20 years? It's, it's been 10 times. So they're trading at the multiple they should be. The only difference is their growth is decelerating. So for me, it's a pass. I just don't think this has a durable moat. Yes, Crocs is a brand, but like, um, again, I could be totally wrong. 
I prefer errors of omission versus commission. This would be an error of commission because I'd be buying the last. By the way, I've thought about buying pairs of Crocs and I know it's sneakers. The minute I get sucked in, the game is over. You know, oh, by the way, I just bought a pair of those ON things like a month ago. I think the company's toast now. Uh, <laughs> I could be completely wrong about that, but, but by the time I buy their product, it's not cool anymore. So uh, same thing happened with Allbirds. So if I buy a pair of Crocs, uh, you know, they're done. I don't foresee me ever buying a pair of Crocs, but stranger things have happened. And uh, I can see it. I see some cool Crocs out there, some of the camouflage ones. So when the minute I get interested, th this thing is actually a, probably a short. Uh, but um, anyway, it, it, it's not at the moment. So hims and hers, too new, losing money. We don't play in that world. Um, I think this company just sells like Viagra through the internet. Like, I don't know what the advantage of that is. Um, let's just take a look. Um, where is the... Oh, here it is. All right, hymns. This was a SPAC hustle by A-Rod and a couple other guys down in Miami. Um, so revenues keep going up. Oh, and by the way, so does SG&A. Oh, and by the way, so do their losses. Let's see their cash flow. Oh, they did generate some cash in the last 12 months. So that's a move in the right direction. So they've got a manana story going, uh, but they're still eroding capital. I, I don't like this. I, I don't see what their mode is. Like anyone can set up a website and sell prescription drugs. I mean, Amazon is one of them. So for me, uh, without knowing a ton about this business, I just don't like it. It's not what I do. Uh, okay. I think both of those are probably faddish. I think Crocs has a better chance, but a lot of the good news has already been priced in. Uh, but I think your logic was better on the Crocs. Um, Brandon Davies asks, you've recently spoken about how you believe the 10-year yield is going to drop later this year, resulting in a bit of 10-year treasuries. To capture the greatest ROI as a result of the Fed's lowering rates, would you recommend trading TLT or TYD? Been reading that based on the commitment of traders, speculators are crowded long. Speculators are not crowded long. It's just the opposite. They are crowded short. Uh, and the media keeps misrepresenting that. Here is the data right here. Green line is commercial hedgers. They are the ones that are long. They are the ones that are always right and early, early and right. They were early for, you know, three quarters of a year in 2018. They're early for three quarters of a year in 2023. The speculators and large traders are shorter than they were at the 2018 lows, okay? So they're the most short that they've ever been, and that creates the setup to absolutely squeeze the hell out of them. No one expects it. The pain trade to cause the most pain in the most amount of people is for this to rally. I wouldn't screw around with... Uh, what is TYD? Probably some leverage thing with no liquidity. Uh, three times, not, what's the volume on that? 
30 million dollars of volume i i wouldn't screw around with that it, it may not even exist um by the time you go to get paid so um just just uh do it whatever you want to do but i would play it differently uh and just play conservatively but more than that you want to play for leverage you play the companies that were the most hit so we talked about crown castle talked about some of the reits we talked about city is a is a play the the uh regional banks are a play because the mark to market on their portfolios is going to dramatically improve their funding costs are going to start to normalize and be quantified um their 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 assets are all going to get marked up as uh rates stop going up and bonds start to get bid so um that's the way I would play it more than anything else. So thanks for that. Uh, JT Investor asks, Dollar General again. Okay, we covered that. Good question and uh, already covered. Jack Zhang, I was wondering if you'd be happy to take a look at uh, MCFT. I think rates play a huge deal on this company, but buying its equity... Okay, so MCFT, I think that's the boats. Problem with MCFT, I think that ship has passed, pun intended, uh, in that everyone that wanted a boat bought it during COVID. Uh, okay, so I see, you know, it's come down 40% or whatever it is. I think this, I honestly, I'd put an alert to take a look at this thing, you know, in the, in the mid-teens. But let's just take a look at what you pay and what you get. Um, by the way, the key to successful investment is not finding things to buy, it's finding things not to buy. Uh, so the revenues are gonna collapse a third from last year to this year. Their earnings have been cut in half, both estimates for next year and this year. Their five-year growth rate is 10% a year. Um, next year's growth is, uh, 7% their current year. Now, it's too early for this one. Um, uh, cash flow. Let's just take a quick look at this. MCFT. It's too early, in my humble opinion. FT. So huge return on capital when it works. Uh, free cash flow positive, so well managed. Yeah, I mean, I have a friend who bought a marina and he's he loves this business, but um, Yeah, I'm going to just, I mean, I see where you're headed with this. Uh, it's just not enough margin of safety. I, I would really like to see this thing flush down below 15 or 12 before I took a look. And I probably won't get it, but I'm not buying it up here uh, near the top after the trend is in the rearview mirror. Um, not for me. I see it at the golf courses. Like, you know, it was, everyone thought they were going to work from home forever it's tougher to get a, a tea time. Now you just walk on whenever you want during the week. Everyone's back to work. I think it's going to be a similar situation with boats. Um, I think that was a rear view mirror thing. And let, 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 
let's get to a normalized level let the price overshoot on the downside and revisit it. Um, Joseph Noss. Uh, Joseph sent me some great putting advice, by the way. Thank you for that. And a podcast. All right. Um, Jackson, he's talking about Eagle Point and some of the other courses. Good stuff. Piedmont Driving Club. Okay, we'll have to do that. Um, Tom Mueller. This is a super long question. All right. I have a more general question about how to think about the mark. You, yeah, you're going to have to, uh, your newbie. Uh, so how do you all right so he's struggling with he has to yeah so the simple answer to your question Tom is you need experience there's no question about it and you just have to see things over so he's asking why would I, why do i stay away from japan why um why uh I, i'm gonna actually answer the question he does ask about pags which is a high risk high reward and he's basically saying like the business looks good so why won't anyone buy it and yeah you have political risk you have um uh, country risk and you have consumer risk. So they, they do consumer credit. But when you look at, as a matter of fact, I think someone upgraded this this week and, and I'm kind of getting, I, I've been looking for something to do in Brazil. Um, so... So they're earning five bucks a share and trading at 10 bucks. And, oh, hold on. Let's just see, U US dollar equivalent. Hold on. By the way, let me just see if I can pull up something on this one from uh, 240100. Okay. So cash flow per share. Cash flow is growing. I mean, everything is in the right place. People are scared because it's all consumer debt. Like, um, and there's a lot of opacity in trying to analyze that. I mean, they're generating cash flow like it's going out of style. They've been compounding capital like it's going out of style. And their balance sheet generally looks good and healthy. So what's wrong? I think um, this is this is really a tough one, and I, and I think you're right to say what's not not to do. I think the only I think the answer to your question is there's no way you can know if you're going to get screwed on this. Uh, but everything is pointing to if you if this was an objective company in the U.S., it would be trading at 10x. So 
of where it is right now. So the answer to your question is when it's when you can't get comfort based on the financials because you have this type of country and company and it's not a huge company in those countries. So what you're taking, you're taking company and country risk with uh, PagSeguro Digital. Um, but the way to offset that is by sizing. That's the only way you can manage your risk. I, I think it probably is worth a punt. And I, and I think that you have good instincts considering you say here you're a newbie. Um, so if this might be a 10% position, if it was a US company and you had absolute confidence, uh, you know, it might be a two and a half percent position, 3% position. But if this thing works, you're gonna have a five bagger. So that 3% contributes 15 points. And if you get blown out 3%, you're gonna earn back from any one of your normal six or 10% positions that doubles or triples. So I think the only way you can manage and get certainty is uh, sizing in this case. And that comes from experience. But I think it's probably worth a punt on this one because it does check all the boxes. It's just, there's some opacity that you're never gonna get clarity on investing in a Brazilian company like this, but it has a decent enough track record. I think the political risk is actually overblown in Brazil. And I do think we're gonna have a monster run in emerging markets and they're gonna catch the tidal wave as the Fed gets out of the way. And Europe is gonna be tightening a lot longer and some of the other parts of the world are gonna be tightening a lot longer. So you get weak dollar, you get emerging market flows. I like it. What can I say? I, I'm usually Mr. No, but I, I gotta say it's worth it in the right size you know, and again, this opinion, not advice. You do, you talk to your financial advisor, et cetera. I don't know your situation, but I, I think it's okay-ish <laughs> if that's of use. Uh, all right, T-Tech from Ekramor Roddy. Wondering if I could get your opinion on TTEC. Thanks, Tom, for guiding us into the value investing world. You're welcome. Thanks for listening. Okay, so... Here's a company that TTEC. So it's down 70%. I like that. Uh, sounds like a mental illness. 70%. I like that. All right. So um, then uh, revenues are growing, earnings are growing. The five-year projected growth rate is negative, so that's what people are worried about. Uh, let's take a look at their financials here. Oh, wait, I think we have one of these summary sheets. Yep. So they've been slowly growing cash flow over the years. They grew a lot during the pandemic. Why did the leading provider of computer experience, technology, and service operate omni-channel ecosystems in cloud, on-premise hybrid environments? Da, 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 da. Okay.
Ooh, I like this. This is probably the most important thing. Chairman and CEO Kenneth Tuchman, T-U-C-H-M-A-N, owns 58.9% of the common stock. That's probably the most important thing you need to know about this company. Um, so revenues are growing. Decent quality business. They've been eroding a little bit in the last few years, but the stock is, you know, that's a pretty big overshoot. Uh, earnings have, you know, cut in half. Cash flow is holding up. They're paying a dividend, 3.5% yield. And let's just see here. So they are growing top line. Yeah, so earnings are taking a hit. Earnings are cut in half and the stock's down 70%. But this guy's got a lot of skin in the game. And, you know, he has a decent history. He had a 20 bagger from uh, 2009 to 2020. So he's not an idiot. He's, he knows how to operate. Now it's down 70%. I don't know. I mean, this is probably the type of guy you want to take a punt with. Uh, now, you know, when I say, yeah, this is where you, the work starts. That's when you get, you know, go listen to the last eight or 12 conference calls, go read the last two or three annual reports, go find out the bear thesis. But, um, at first blush, they're generating free cash flow. I mean, your, your balance sheet looks, uh, meh. Balance sheet is a, probably people a little worried about. They took on a lot of debt in the last few years. I don't know. I, I like having a partner that has a ton more to lose than I do um, in this case. And um, I think uh, Ekramar, I think you're onto something here. I would pursue it further and uh, do your research before you do anything. But um, I think at, at first blush, I think you've, you've done some pretty good work here. Uh, Joseph Cook. Okay, just sending me some stuff on China, thank you. Okay, so uh, Oh, okay. So this is from Joseph. Um, also giving me some great putting advice on strokes gained. I appreciate that. So he's asking me about this Australian company, PRO. All right, let's get this in USD so I can understand it. This is a tiny nothing company. Um, losing money. No, this is not checking the boxes, my friend. Cash. Cash flow per share. Burning cash. No. No, 
Now, this is going to be an easy one. I'm sorry, my friend. What do they do here? Um, computer software applications. Da, 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 da. Yeah, uh, I'm going to pass. I don't, I, I, um, this is just a, a gamble on, you know, whatever they're promising they can do in the future. I, I, that's not the game I play. doesn't mean it won't work. It's just not for me. Um, all right. Let's see. And one last one here. Huh. Prophecy International. Yeah, it's interesting. So I got another call from another for the same stock. They must be pushing this online or something. Prophecy International. All right. Well, I covered the Australian one. I don't know if you're asking. I think you're also asking about the Australian one, which is kind of odd. So someone must be pushing this thing for no reason. Um, but I'll just take a quick look at the American one. Yeah, so the same story. The American one is burning cash, as far as I can see. Yep, burning cash. No, no. These are gambles for me. It doesn't mean they don't work. It's just not the business that I'm in. I bet I'm sure things that are out of favor temporarily that have durable, proven moats, ability to generate cash. I buy them when they're on sale. I sell them when everyone wants them, rinse, repeat. And that's all I do. I, I know what I'm good at and I stay in my lane and it works very well. And, um, and that's what I'll continue to do. So uh, this one, not for me, but your uh, golf advice is greatly appreciated as far as getting fitted for the putter and all of that stuff. For those of you um, who've been following along, uh, that'll make more sense. For those of you who are new, just take it at face value. But with that said, I'd like to thank everyone for tuning in this week. We're going to be back next week, same time, same place. Tune, tune in to Fox Business tomorrow at the 2 p.m. hour for Charles Payne. And not just tomorrow, but every day. Uh, and um, we'll be back next week, same time, same place. In the meantime, make it a great one. Bye for now.